Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 39 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. This week, it's a very brief jobs for the month section and then some interesting information about fat bees and selfish bees. So stay tuned. Beekeeping Short and Sweet a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. Welcome once again to my weekly podcast, and my thanks to those of you listening via the Patreon page. I really appreciate your support. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a support page where you can help me create more content by signing up to one of my reward tiers, and in return, you gain access to additional content and support from me. These start from as little as $1 per month, so I believe with the regular quality content I'm producing, $1 represents excellent value for money. If you've not yet started beekeeping and you're looking for help and assistance, pop over to my website www.norfolk-honey.co.uk forward slash get started and I'll do all I can to help you out with suggestions and recommendations for you. As usual, I'll leave any relevant links for this week's podcast in the show notes. I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that autumn has finally arrived. Last weekend here in the UK, we turned our clocks back and I had a very successful trip to Wembley Stadium in London to watch my favourite American football team, the Philadelphia Eagles, beat the Jacksonville Jaguars. It was a really good game. Anyway, with the turning back of the clocks, we suddenly got hit with some colder weather and I've now had a couple of frosty mornings where I've had to scrape the ice off the windscreen of the pickup. All this means one thing, it's cluster time. But it is a quieter period now for us beekeepers, and hopefully you're sat listening to this with a hot drink and a smug grin on your face, knowing you've completed everything you need to in order to best prepare your bees for the coming winter. Although the bees are not as active, they will be popping out of the hive on cleansing flights and gathering water when the sun warms the daytime temperatures sufficiently. There may also be some very late ivy out there for them that they can still forage on, and you might see some yellow pollen coming back into the hives if this is the case. You may also spot that the bees you have take to the wing at different times. Perhaps you have some near-native bees that will fly out earlier in colder weather than some of the other strains of bees, such as the Italian Ligustica, that much prefers the warmer climates. There's always something to keep your eye on in and around the apiary. I've just put down mouse traps in my storage sheds. I've seen evidence of mice running around in there. And now that I own a fair proportion of poly equipment, hives, nukes, queen mating nukes and the like, it's one of the few downfalls of poly kit. Mice, rats, and you might have seen in some of my videos with the Maysmore poly commercial hives, that rabbits all seem to take an interest and bite out chunks from these hives and nukes. So it does take a little bit more effort to protect. That said, I did wrap a stack of polysupers in a large tarpaulin sheet last winter, and they were perfectly protected, and that didn't take any time at all really, so it's not really a chore. It's also time to start thinking about getting the mouse guards and chicken wire on some of the colonies too. I have a couple of apiary sites that are always visited by the green woodpecker. Last winter, during a particularly cold period of frosty and icy conditions, I actually got quite lucky. During a visit to the lakeside apiary that you might have spotted 
in some of my videos, I saw a green woodpecker actively feeding, but instead of attacking my hives, it was trying to pull up some lichen from the ground and search for food. Fortunately, it had ignored all of my hives, and so I quickly wrapped them all in chicken wire. I've got several apiaries which have no green woodpecker visitors to my knowledge, and I don't bother wrapping those hives with chicken wire. It may be a bit of a risky strategy, and I may find this out to my cost one day, but until then, I think I'll leave them unwrapped. Actually, at the same apiary, the alpaca apiary, the one where we have the Happy Valley honey hives, I won't have to put mouse guards on some of the hives, as the floors and brood boxes are designed to form an entrance that's too narrow for a mouse to squeeze into. The ventilated floors on the Happy Valley honey hives are vulnerable, but these have some custom mouse guards that have been supplied again by Happy Valley honey to me, so I'll be trying those out this winter. But really, there's not a great deal else to do. So I wanted to take a, a little step back in time and just remind you of the treatment and feeding regime I employed this year, and give some detail in addition as to why I've taken the steps I have at the timing that I took. We need to look at the timing because it's important and relevant to the whole idea of the fat bees that I talked about at the beginning of the podcast. And that in turn relates to successful overwintering of honeybee colonies. I used the same process I've used in most years and it works really well but I didn't always understand the significance of the timing. I was just doing as I was instructed by my mentor at the time but that was quite a few years ago. It's often not until you gain an understanding of why you're doing something that everything slots into place and suddenly it all makes sense. I guess it's a bit like trying to read a map in thick fog only to have the fog suddenly lift and reveal the landscape to you. Suddenly it all makes sense. I've once again been searching my books, the internet and scientific papers for information and I'll leave details about the references and the websites in the show notes. I'm fast becoming a real fan of the Randy Oliver scientific beekeeping website and a fair chunk of the information I'm speaking about today again comes from there. The great thing is he references everything and it's usually from peer-reviewed scientific papers so there's a level of confidence that can be taken away from each article. Speaking of articles, I've been reading a couple recently about winter bees. One states that during the winter there is no brood rearing and the other states that he found evidence of stop-start brood rearing. And this throws up an issue particularly for beginner beekeepers. It's knowing which advice or what statements are true and which are misguided. A lot of beekeepers offer up advice that they've been given by other beekeepers who got their information from another beekeeper. So it can be very difficult to know exactly what to believe, especially if that beekeeper has been doing the same thing incorrectly or wrong for the last 30 years. Regarding articles and write-ups, if you have any doubt, always go with the article that has references and double-check the references and maybe read those as well. It's a safer bet, I think. Anyway, back to the winter bees and my time travel back to August and September. Because of the forage my bees had locally, or should I say lack of forage, I removed all of my supers for extraction at the end of July. I followed this with varroa treatments this year during August and the first couple of weeks of September. You'll remember I used Apistan. Through September, I started feeding the bees to build up the stores of syrup in the outer frames and to make sure the bees had a continuous source of food. 
So here we get to the reasons why it's important that you get your timing right. Winter bees start to develop through August and September. This also coincides with a gradual reduction in the brood nest area. And at the same time, if you have a growing population of varroa through the summer, you'll also have a peak number of varroa mites looking for somewhere to hide and reproduce. The effect is more varroa fighting for fewer brood cells to occupy. These larvae, rather than growing and developing into strong, healthy winter bees, are adversely affected by the varroa mites and emerge less able to face the long winter months and with potentially a shortened lifespan. Fast forward to January and February, just when the cluster needs an optimum number of bees to maintain brood nest integrity, fewer bees means a reduced ability to maintain heat, and they can potentially freeze to death over the last few weeks of winter, and that would be a disaster for you. So that's one of the reasons you need to plan your beekeeping around winter preparations. Getting it right for the autumn and winter should mean a fast start the following spring. So what is a fat bee? Well, actually, it's exactly as it sounds, a fat bee. In preparation for the winter, honeybees not only rush around stashing honey and pollen within the hive for the long winter months ahead, but individually put down internal food stores. Stores of not just fat, but also carbohydrates, amino acids and proteins. If you were to dissect an adult worker now, you'd likely find it packed with enlarged white fat deposits within its abdomen. You'll also find them in and around the head area. In fact, I might just do this in order to show you what I mean. So look out for a video or two in the coming weeks. So here's the sciencey bit. The primary protein of most importance here is one called vitellogenin. Suffice to say, it's the protein responsible for egg yolk production. So you can see how nourishing and important it is. Vitellogenin is also known as a glycolipoprotein. Glycolipoprotein, which means it has sugar, fat and protein in it. Hence the name. Sugar is the glyco part of the name. Fat is the lipo part of the name. And of course, protein. Glycolipoprotein. As an aside, vitellogenin is also used in the production of royal jelly, but that's another story for another podcast another time. As I mentioned, vitellogenin is used by animals to aid egg yolk production, but bees have also been able to use it as a reservoir for energy storage. So I'm just going to pause with that thought in mind. Vitellogenin is used to produce egg yolk, but of course the vast majority of female honeybees are workers with no need for egg yolk production. So, Evolutionary change has allowed the workers to use this mechanism to their advantage, and rather than produce egg yolk with the vitellogenin, they're able to produce and deposit fat bodies to help them survive the winter. It's simply incredible. If you're still with me, and you've managed to treat your bees in good time, and they're well provisioned, the newly emerging workers will fill up on pollen and convert it to be stored in these fat bodies. It's one of the reasons you see so much pollen going into the hive in late summer from the ivy. If you've got a strong ivy flow, the chances are you'll have some very fat bees indeed. Remember, colonies with high varroa levels will never be as strong as they could otherwise have been, so don't just leave it to chance. Another article, but without references. Remember what I said about the importance of references. Anyway, another article that I recently read suggested that bees within the winter cluster routinely move around to allow all of the bees to maintain their body temperature. 
something akin to the way penguins move around in the huddle of a dark winter. You've probably seen it on one of Sir David Attenborough's programmes. Well, here again, I found a different view, and it comes from another article, this time with references. But it's quite an old article, and I stumbled across it by chance. It gives a different view of why the bees in a cluster move around, and it's really interesting and quite compelling. And these are the thirsty bees. The article is called Brood Rearing in the Winter Cluster by a guy called Bernard Mobus, and it was first published in July 1988. Winter losses are nothing new, it seems, and in the article he states, wintering losses of honeybee colonies are becoming more frequent and serious now. And that was back in 1988, 30 years ago. It seems some things haven't changed much. We seem to think that winter losses are a new phenomenon, but it appears beekeepers were complaining about it 30 years ago. Even 30 years ago, we knew that autumn treatments against Varroa were really important, and he describes the Varroa as draining the lifeblood of the winter bees. It's an interesting and thought-provoking read, but the parts I found most interesting were the discussion regarding the stop-start pattern of brood-rearing in the cluster and the effect of water or lack of it on individual bees. The article is in two parts and quite lengthy, so I'm going to skip to the parts that are of most interest to me for this podcast. I'll perhaps revisit the article and do some more research for another time regarding Bernard Mobus's articles. Forgetting the brood-rearing part and focusing on the movement of bees in the winter cluster, the article talks about respiration rates and the production of water vapour as part of that process. Given that brood-rearing is potentially taking place albeit on a start-stop basis, it would mean that the brood nest area needs to maintain a high temperature, pushing 30 degrees centigrade around the larvae. What the investigations found was that the higher the temperature, the lower the metabolic rate of the bees in that part of the cluster, and the lower water production. Bear with me on this point. The bees towards the outside of the cluster, rather than sacrificing themselves for the good of the colony, were in fact eating more stores in order to maintain their own body temperatures for survival, not just forming some thermal blanket for the inner part of the cluster. This meant that they were producing more metabolic water and waste in general, but more metabolic water than they could evaporate being on the outside of the cluster and in the colder region of the hive. In effect, what is suggested is the colder the bees the greater the individual effort to keep warm, and that the benefit of short-range clustering with neighbouring bees serves to assist in combining the heat resource as well as benefiting from the nearest neighbour. Meanwhile, the bees inside the cluster are not in a tight cluster at all and are making the least amount of effort to contribute to the overall cluster temperature. Now for what appears to be the very clever bit and somewhat goes against our view of the honeybee as an altruistic creature always sacrificing itself for the greater good. What Mobus suggests is that the bees within the centre of the cluster are consuming less and burning less because they're in the cosy warmth of the centre of the cluster. Because of this, they're in a net loss of water by evaporation to the point that they become dehydrated. Meanwhile, the bees on the outer edge of the cluster are busy eating honey and burning it to keep warm, but the cold does not allow them to evaporate metabolic water quickly enough, and so they accumulate the water surplus, which builds up internally. So what's the solution to this problem? Rather than the altruistic view, 
that beekeepers have of the bees moving around like penguins to help keep each other warm, Mobus suggests that the bees in the middle of the cluster move to the outside edge to feed and increase their rate of metabolic water production. What he means is the bees move out, they feed to keep warm, and the resulting chemical oxidation produces an excess of water which is retained in the honeybee's body due to the ambient cooler temperatures, and thus hydrates the bee. Meanwhile, the bees on the outside of the cluster move towards the middle, have a reduced need to eat, and therefore create less metabolic water. This reduces the internal excess and kind of dries them out. All of this happens within an optimal size cluster, and the bees continue to work in this way until the weather breaks and they can get out on a cleansing flight before starting the whole process again. I guess there will always be exceptions and issues with smaller or larger colonies, and each will have challenges to adapt this process, but it seems far more likely to me that this would have evolved rather than some kind of altruistic process of keeping each other warm. So there it is, a selfish survival-driven process between bees at different layers in the cluster where thirsty bees need to move towards the outside of the cluster in order to rehydrate and those that are overly hydrated move to the inside part of the cluster to just dry out a little bit. And that makes a lot more sense to me than the other motivations that seem to be suggested. I need to look at this article further and to try to find other papers that corroborate this research, but I thought you'd like to hear about it and maybe give you something to ponder. Ultimately, it's good to question what beekeepers say and to think carefully about the reasons, something I've not done enough of in the past. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions about this and I look forward to investigating further and hopefully being able to answer those questions for you. But if you do have any, please do send them in to me. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for hanging around until the end of the podcast and do keep the comments coming. I'm Stuart Spinks and that was Beekeeping Short and Sweet. Sweet.